0: So yesterday, as I was doing a little bit of work on my introduction for this sermon, uh, I I, I googled this line, um, I put in my little, little Google search engine, U.S. consumption versus the rest of the world. Now, I don't know if you ever looked at this, U.S. consumption versus the rest of the world. And the the results that came back, you know, they are very disturbing in many ways. And in a lot of ways, you've got to kind of dig below the surface because, you know, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet, right? And not everything you read is true. And I found myself reading all kinds of rather troubling stats, for example, The United States has less than 5% of the world's population and yet consumes over 16% of the world's resources. In other words, we Americans use uh, three times as many resources as the rest of the world. Uh, Or this one, Americans create an estimated 30% of the world's waste. I mean, stop and think about that for a second. Now, I don't know whether or not that's true. Again, I read it on the internet, so it's... Probably true. Uh, But I I did go to the UN website for, I was like, where can I get the most reliable information? So then I was kind of on the the UN website, and it, it gave a stat that, You know, I don't know about you, but when a preacher or a speaker starts reading off a bunch of statistics and they're massive, you know, oftentimes they just don't connect. They just feel like a bunch of numbers. And you're like, I don't really see how that connects with my daily life. And it doesn't exactly compute. And you can find yourself thinking like, I know that, you know, we consume, you know, we're 5% of the world's population, consume, you know, 16% of the world's resources. That just sounds, you know, I, I guess it sounds bad, but is it that bad, you know? Can't we also read that, that we Americans are winning? <laughs> like, we're, you know. Uh, but I came across this slide that I don't know what it was about this, but it just made this truth sink in. Um, and and the, the slide essentially said that it would take the equivalent of 1.6 Earths to maintain our current level of consumption. Now, just think about that. If um, you, you're making, let's say, $100,000 a year, but you are spending $160,000 a year, some of you are like, I know what that's like. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and what are you doing? Well, you're digging into your savings account, if you've got one, or you're going in debt. And so what this stat revealed is that Currently, at current rates, we are consuming 1.6 Earths or the equivalent of 1.6 Earths resources every year, which means that we're digging into the supply of fish and of clean water and of air and of soil, and uh, we're burning through forests and wetlands, and soil is being eroded. And so what the basic point is, is that the way we are living is just not sustainable. But then I thought, like, I wonder how that computes to my own life because I'm a good American and I'm quite sure that I probably consume more than my fair share of the world's resources because this is on the, current, the world's current levels of consumption. And um, so I kept reading and it gave this stat that if the rest of the world... We're using resources at the rate that Americans use resources, it would require the equivalent of five Earths in order to maintain our current levels of consumption. Now, again, just stop and think about that. That is just, I know this isn't rocket science, and I know this isn't, you know, over overly complicated, but this is not sustainable, people. We cannot keep sustain. Now, God only gave us one earth, right? And yet we're consuming the the resources equivalent to five earths, and it's just not sustainable. But here's the question I want to put to you this morning. Does that reality have anything to do with a follower of Jesus? Or we could put it like this. Does the Christian faith have anything of significance and substance to say to us as we face the environmental crisis we're living in today. Or put it like this, I think a lot of us would agree that you have a clear and obvious moral obligation when it comes to your sexual ethics or when it comes to the care for the poor or when it comes to your honesty and integrity. Of course, before the face of God, you have an obligation But do you, do I have an obligation when it comes to the care of creation? Uh, Do you have a moral and a theological obligation before God? And and of course, we can keep pressing this, you know. Uh, You and I know, like, we have some theological obligations. There are things we're obligated to profess, to believe, and commit ourselves to. There's sound doctrine that you have got to hold to and maintain as a follower of Jesus. Uh, Is there sound practice when it comes to how you and I live as it relates to the resources in the world? And that's the question I want us to reflect on today together. Now, we have been in a series entitled Human, and we've been asking the question, what does it mean to be human? And who are we anyway? And what are we supposed to be about in this world? You know, uh, it was said by uh, Albert Camus, we quoted this before, you know, everything has been figured out, you know, in this technological age, everything has been figured out except what? Except how to live. And so we have been asking the question, what does it mean to live as a faithful human in this world? And so the question that, that we're asking today is, to be a faithful human, a creature of God, a follower of Jesus, do you, do I, do we have any obligations to the created world around us? And if so, what are they? And we want to bring that question into conversation with the first two chapters of the Bible, the very opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. These first two chapters of the Bible are telling us about our place in the world and the web of relationships into which we are born. We are placed creatures. Uh, We did not invent our own existence. You are not the author of your life. God is. We live in God's world on God's terms. But what does that mean as it relates to the created world around us? And what I want to do to help us answer that question is that I want to draw your attention once again to these opening chapters in Genesis. And specifically, I want to begin with chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 26. Now, Genesis 1, of course, is this majestic liturgical poem. And in it, God separates the night from the day, the firmament from the water, uh, the He causes the land to appear and the seeding plants and the sun and the stars and the fish and the birds and the crawling creatures that crawl on the dry land. And up to this point in the poem, uh, all we know about God, really the only thing we know about God up to this point is that God is the God who creates. The creator creates his creation, But we also learn this, that God not only creates all things, God values and delights and enjoys his creation. Because what is the verdict? What is the refrain after each of God's creative acts? It is this, it is what? Good. He says, it is good. The Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis suggests the translation, God saw how beautiful it was. And there was almost an element of surprise and delight in this refrain after each day. It is good. Oh, it's so good. God is the first one to see how beautiful and good his creation is. But then the poem leads up to a final creative act. And it's this. Then God said, then after all of that beauty and after all of that delight and goodness and fertility and blessing... After the smile of God over everything that he'd made, then he creates the crowning act of his creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And do you see what's happening in this passage? In this passage, God is now speaking of the relationship, the, the, the place you play in the web of relationships within the created order. There is all of this beauty and goodness, the sea and the land and the sky and the birds and the fish and the land creatures crawling upon the, the, the land everywhere and the seed-bearing plants and the fruit trees and all of that. And then all of a sudden, there's the human creature who is created in the image of God. And what is the relationship that the human, or let's make this personal, what's the relationship that you have to the rest of the creation of God? And look what it says. Let them have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over all the birds of the air. And he goes on. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And so notice, after giving the gift of life, after God gives to us, we could say after God donates to us existence, out of his own self-existence, his infinite life. God donates to you and I life. And after that, he gives us a second gift. And what is the gift? He gives you, he gives me vocation and responsibility and a mission in the world that he has created. He gives you an important, valuable role to play. And what is it? He says, it's this, it is to subdue and it is to exercise dominion over all of the beauty that I have made. Or we could put it like this. Um, You know, Dallas Willard, uh, old spiritual luminary and thinker, he used to say, you know, it's common for us to talk about how we need to trust God, you know, trust in God. But have you ever considered how much God has trusted you? How much trust God has given to you? What has God entrusted his creation with in this act? God entrusts us to rule over, to exercise wise and loving care over the world that God himself made. You know, I ran into uh, my friend Justin this last week and Justin was driving this sweeted out Porsche. And I'm like, dude, where did you get the Porsche, you know? And he's like, my dad, you know, it's my dad's car and I'm selling it for him. I'm like, I bet you put a really high price on that car so it doesn't sell for a very long time, you know? <laughs> but the dad had entrusted Justin with the Porsche. And, uh, you know, think about this. The creator of all things has handed to you and I the keys. He says, look, I have given you authority in my world and it is your Role. It is your job to exercise rule and dominion in creation. The psalmist puts it like this in the text that Kellen read to us so well. You have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. And you have given him, speaking of humanity, dominion over the works of your hand. And you have put all things under his feet." And so the human creatures are given rule and authority in God's world. We are called to exercise dominion. But what does that mean? What does it mean to exercise dominion? Yesterday, I was walking up the steps to my house, and I came across this little beautiful creature. This is a praying mantis. It is my favorite insect. There was a time in our life when we had a pet praying mantis they wouldn't allow us to have a dog in the apartment, and my kids were allergic to cats. And we had uh, an aquarium with a little fish tank at one, or a little fish in there at one point, but uh, my sea snail, Shaq, named after the great Laker legend, Shaquille O'Neal, who lived in the, in the aquarium, kept eating the fish. And I know it sounds a little bit like, does that happen? Some of you are looking it up right now on your phone. Stop that. <laughs> But truly, we walked in there one day, there was like a fish skeleton, like, connected to the snail. We're like, what's going on, Shaq? You know, anyway, we're like, no, let's do a praying mantis, you know. And um, so we went and we apprehended, we captured a little praying mantis. And I had heard that they were very, very intelligent creatures. Apparently, they are the most intelligent of all insects. And so... And it's really incredible. I don't know if you, could, you know this, but you can teach a praying mantis tricks. And so if you, we just moved our hand and we taught it how to sit and how to roll over. And um, we taught it the alphabet and how to do math. And it was great. Um, but, but here's the thing about a praying mantis is um, it only eats live animals or live, but it'll also eat animals. It eat, apparently a praying mantis will eat bird. Um, it, Anyway, that's another story, but we weren't feeding our praying mantis birds. This is going somewhere, trust me. Maybe it's not, I don't know. But, um, but my wife and I, we would sit in our kitchen at night, and we would have to catch fruit flies, and we would cover it in cellophane and stick them in the freezer to stun them but not kill them. And then we would take them out, and we would take the now stunned fruit flies into his little like tank, and, and then they would wake up, and then we would watch the um, praying mantis eat the fruit flies. And we didn't have a TV back in those days. (laughs) And we homeschooled, and so that's just, you know. (laughs) But is that what it means to, to exercise dominion? You know, to use force and apprehend the thing and stick it in the cage and then take those things and touch them and then stun them and then feed them to them? And like, are we exercising dominion? Like, what does it mean to exercise dominion anyway? Now, I want to suggest that if you look in the context and we note three things, uh, we we, we can learn, I think, a little bit about what the Bible means when it calls us to exercise dominion and to subdue God's world. Number one, I want you to note the definition. This word dominion can be translated as skilled mastery. In fact, uh, Old Testament scholar Ellen Davis, she said that the key Hebrew verb in this text suggests skill along with power. Uh, In other words, we are charged to exercise skilled mastery among the creatures. And our best clue as to what that skilled mastery might mean comes in the next verse where God gives to the human creatures as well as to the rest of the creatures food to eat. And maybe one aspect of exercising skilled mastery is to keep watch over the food chain to ensure that all human creatures and all animal creatures have enough food to live. But... Think about that. This word exercise dominion involves skilled mastery. But again, what exactly does that mean? You know, I was reading a little book on what it means to be created in the image of God by a fourth-century uh, theologian whose name is Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory of Nyssa is one of the famous Cappadocian fathers. Uh, He's one of the the fathers who helped formulate and articulate our modern doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, He is one of the great luminaries, one of the great theological minds of church history. And he wrote a book about what it means to be made in the image of God. And in this book, he asks the most interesting question. Uh, he, He wonders, and he asks this question, he says, Why is it that those powers which aid life do not belong naturally to the human body. And so what he does is is he's, he's thinking about different powers that different creatures have. He thinks about bears and their capacities and boars and their capacities and the alligator and its scaly skin and its big teeth. And he's like, but the human creature, the human creature doesn't seem to have all of those capacities. Like, why don't you have more capacities? He says, for example, man is brought into life bare of natural covering, an unarmed poor being. You don't have a turtle shell. Destitute of all useful, worthy things, not armed with prominent horns or sharp claws, nor hooves or teeth, nor any deadly sting. And I I was just delighting in this because I'm like, here is the guy who formulated the doctrine of the Trinity, And he is wondering why it was that you and I were not born Avengers, you know? Like, why is it that we don't look like Black Panther? Like, wouldn't it have been more fitting if the one who was created to exercise dominion and rule in God's world had claws and teeth and could jump and scale and had this armor and whatnot? He's like, what gives? And he said, the reason is this. We are called to exercise dominion, not domination or exploitation, we are not called to exploit, but rather to cooperate with creation. Wisdom and mastery is born out of a loving knowing of God's creatures, creation. And so our engagement with the world is to be marked not by exploitation and abuse and threats, but by a wise and careful knowing, a partnership. He suggests a cooperation with the creatures. So that as we engage with God's creation, with cooperation, we might bring it to its fullness and flourishing and ourselves along with it. In other words, to engage in God's creation... I need to take this picture off pretty soon because some of you are like, there's Black Panther back here. When he's going to... I I do this sometimes when I'm watching a sermon. If somebody has a picture up too long, I'm like, when's he going to move the (laughs) picture? All right. Listen, um, before we do that, because you just need to keep looking at him, and I need my notes that are in front of me. Um, I'm not sure that if you look at our food system and our treatment of the soil and of rivers and land and animals, that the, the phrase that would come to mind is skillful, loving mastery. If you look at chickens in battery cages and pens who carry the intelligence of your dog stuck in a crate their entire life, or cows whose bodies are designed to digest grass, instead being fed corn and then needed to be given antibiotics and and all kinds of drugs in order to prevent them from getting sick, or injection of drugs into chickens so that they can't walk. I'm not sure that we would describe that as wise mastery within God's good world. Now, there are some people who I think are exercising wise mastery in God's world. I don't know if you've heard of a farmer, a very creative farmer whose name is Joel Salatin. He's a Christian and he, forms, he farms out of his Christian convictions. In fact, um, he engages in a practice of farming that he calls forgiveness farming. And it's his imagination. He's like, we have wronged these creatures for too long. And he views his own act of of farming as an act of forgiveness farming, of, of bringing grace back into the life of the creatures. And one of the things he wants to do on his farm is allow the cow to revel in all of its cowness and chickens to revel in all of their chickenness and pigs to revel in all of their pigness. And he says, look, if you attend to the proclivities of these animals, well and you organize your farm accordingly, you can have a more abundant produce. And look at what he says. He says this, um, this is actually in his book entitled, um, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, Respecting and Caring for All of God's Creation. He writes this, it's just a great title. He says, the sheer mystery and majesty of heritage wisdom. Contained in each cell, each mitochondria. He's saying, look, the pig itself contains wisdom. Observe the pig. Go to the ant and become wise, as the Proverbs would say. It instills in the farmer who respects and honors the pigness of the pig a daily emotional high. The satisfaction of being nature's nurturer always trumps the short-lived adrenaline high of being nature's conqueror. And that's why the industrial farmer, for all of the smoke and noise and horsepower, never feels in control, but always dreads being drowned by the nature he thinks he's controlling. And so what is being described in our role of humans as it relates to the creation? Well, what's being described here is skilled mastery. But I want you to note something else. I want you to note the context. Notice this is the skilled mastery that's called to imitate who? After whose likeness have we been made anyway? Notice back in the text, you know, just before he makes this statement, let them have dominion. And this is important to point out because this verse has been taken and it's been abused by Christians throughout human history, throughout Western history, to enable us to go and to exploit and abuse creation merely to serve our own self-centered ends without any thought of the animals or the soil or the sea or the air and just exploit, exploit, exploit because, hey, you have been given dominion. But is that the kind of dominion that we are called to exercise? No, it is not. This is the dominion that is marked by those who are made, quote, after the likeness of God, after our likeness. It is a skilled mastery that reflects God, or in the language of Ephesians, you be imitators of God as dear children. In other words, the same attention and delight and care that God has for his world, so too his image bearers who are exercising and who have been given the authority to exercise rule in God's world are to reflect God's own wise and loving care of God's creation." So this is not aggressive control and limitless exploitation. Rather, this is a human vocation that is modeled after God himself. God's action and rule are paradigmatic for our own human action. Richard Middleton, a theologian, put it like this. He said, the kind of power God exercises is generous, loving power. It is power used to nurture, enhance, and empower others. By the way, isn't that the kind of power that you want to be the recipient of? When somebody has authority and power over your life, you hope to God and pray that they're gonna use that and leverage that in a way that empowers others, that it cares for others, that doesn't merely serve their own self-centered ends and their desire for ego or whatever. No, he he says, no, it is power used to nurture, enhance, and empower others non-coercively and for their benefit, not for the self-aggrandizement of the one exercising power. In other words, this is a creative use of power we find in God throughout the opening account of creation, a power which invites and evokes and permits. Nothing here of coercive or tyrannical power. And so listen, what am I saying? I'm saying when you look at this in context, what we see is that to be, an image-bearer called to exercise dominion, which you and I are, is an invitation to exercise wise and loving mastery over creation in ways that reflect and imitate God's own care and love for creation. Or in the language of Jesus, do not exercise authority like the Gentiles, like who only use their power to serve themselves. No, instead he says, you shall not be like them. And there are passages throughout the the Torah that encourage God's people in this kind of wise and loving exercise of power that attends to God's creation and their particularities and their needs with love and attention. Uh, There's a passage in the Torah that says, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Like, that's one of the laws of God. You're like, well, that's one law of God. I don't think I'll ever have to break, you know? Like, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. He says, no, let the ox eat. It was born to eat that grain as it's, as it's plowing your fields. It's a, it's a partner cooperating with you, so treat the animal well. And there's another law that says this. Look, do not boil a goat or a kid, the baby of a, it's not like a child, but a kid kid is a baby goat, you know. Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. Isn't that interesting? Like, how would it even know? And yet God says it doesn't matter. You need to, in your practices in this world, honor the integrity of that animal. The animal is a creation of God. And I think most centrally, in ancient Israel, they were not allowed to consume the blood of an animal. And the the reasoning for that is clear. It's because the life is in the blood. And so they were to take the blood of the animal and pour it out on the altar before the face of God. Every animal's blood would be to pour it out to say, I'm offering this life back to God. I'm recognizing that these creatures are not mine to manipulate and coerce. They're not commodities to be chopped up and put on styrofoam and wrapped in plastic. I mean, we can do all that, but make sure you treat the animal well before it gets to your plate. And so... What does it mean to exercise dominion? Well, note first, of course, the meaning, it's wise mastery. Uh, second, we're noting the context, it involves the imitation of God's own love and care and creation. But thirdly, I want you to note the parallel passage. Notice in chapter one, there's an order. It begins that with creation of the human creature, and then it moves to vocation for the human creature. And that pattern is followed in chapter two. There again is the creation of the human creature. Uh, The human is formed of dust, and then he is breathed into with the life breath of God and the life-giving mercies and the creative power of God animate the dust and the, the man becomes a living being. And after creation, again, the human creature is given vocation And listen how the vocation is described. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to exploit it and to abuse it for whatever he wanted. No. God set the human creature in the garden to work it and to keep it. To work it and to take care of it. That first word Work In fact, both of these words, it's interesting they're almost never used throughout the Bible. They're used actually a lot throughout the Bible, but almost never as it relates to agriculture, farming, gardening. Instead, these words carry other types of meaning that are informative for us here. That first word uh, that's translated "work," it's the Hebrew word avad. Can we say that together? and it means work, but it it carries the connotation to work for someone. When God calls Pharaoh to release the enslaved Israelites, it is so that they might come and avod me, they might serve me. In other words, the human creature is put in the land to serve the land, to serve the garden. In the same way that a good ruler or governor or president will use their authority to serve the people. They are a servant of the people. So too, the human creature is put in creation to serve creation. The second term that's translated take care of is the Hebrew word shamar. Can we say that together? And it has even stronger connotations. It means to watch over or to observe or to keep or to preserve. And in the vast majority of occurrences, this word is used uh, to describe how we are to keep and observe the Torah. And how are you to keep Torah? How are you to watch over Torah? Well, one, you're to watch over your life so you don't violate Torah, and you are to carefully attend to the text so that you might put it into practice in your life. And here, in the, in the words of Ellen Davis, she says, Israel is charged to keep watch against violation and distortion and simple forgetfulness of not just divine teaching, but also God's world. And so what is this saying about our role and responsibility in God's world? Well, we are put in creation to keep it, to watch over it. Um, It is our responsibility to serve and to protect creation from violation from land and soil and seas, from being polluted with toxins that will kill the animal creatures of God in those places and that will harm our own lungs and that will deplete the precious resources for generations to come. No, we are to watch and to guard and to keep. This is our vocation as human creatures. And so let's just stand back now. What, what are we seeing here? We are seeing that our job as it relates to the rest of creation is to exercise a wise and knowing mastery in God's world that imitates and mimics God's own love and care for creation. And that involves the the work of serving and protecting and guarding and bringing out its fullness and fruitfulness so that there is much for generations to come, not just for the human community, but also for the animals. Now, what I want to do at this point is I want to stop. Actually, I don't want to stop quite just yet, but I want to just stand back and I want to ask, what am I supposed to do with this? And I don't know about you, but um, and maybe you've had this thought going through your mind as you're listening to this sermon. You're like, okay, Josh, I'm not a farmer. Like, Like, what do you want me to do with it? Like, what am I expected to do with this kind of teaching? One thing that I've observed with myself as I've thought to put these ideas into practice really over the last 20 years of my life is just how habituated I am to the kind of life that depletes resources, that wants more and more stuff, that doesn't give a rip about how the food got to my plate or how the shirt got to my back and all of the processes that were, like, I just, I'm trained and habituated as an American to be a good, thoughtless consumer. I remember years ago reading a book by um, a professor of philosophy, his name was Uh, James K.A. Smith. It's a book called You Are What You Love. And it was interesting because he was talking about how um, we can have ideas in our head. And I don't don't actually believe that any of you would dispute what I've said. I think all of us would agree, yeah, we're called to be stewards in creation. That if any group of people in this world is supposed to be known as, as having like an environmentalist fire in their belly, to care about the preservation of land and, and to, to fight against the, uh, the extinction of, of animals and plant species, it should be followers of Jesus. I mean, we have, been steward, we have been called to this vocation in God's world. I don't think any of us disagrees with this, but I can relate really well to James K. A. Smith. He, he, said, he said that for, for years, he said his wife had been talking to him about how you know, we need to recycle, and we need to eat more organic, we need to buy local, we need to shop at farmer's markets, and do you know where the meat came from? And don't you care about what it's doing to your body and to the land? And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it just wasn't, like, it wasn't sinking in. And, um, and then he said, but, but then he picked up a book by a poet, theologian, philosopher, whose name is Wendell Berry. He's also a farmer. He's the poet farmer, the poet theological farmer. And he's a brilliant writer. And he starts reading Wendell Berry. And Wendell Berry starts convicting him. And, and, and I'm going to read you a quote from Wendell Berry in just a second. You're going to see how convicting and challenging he is about this stuff. And, he, and he's reading this. And he said he found himself, as he's reading this book, all of a sudden, everything that his wife had been saying started to sink in. He's like, yes, we need to do, like, I'm gonna, yeah. And he's underlining the book and and he's, and then he said, all of a sudden it occurred to him that he was reading this book while eating a hot dog in the food court at Costco. (laughs) That's, That's all of us. I'm thinking about these ideas while I'm eating a hot dog in the food court at Costco. What does it look like to begin to embody A life as a faithful steward in God's creation in this world. And let me just suggest four quick things. Number one, what am I supposed to do? I want to suggest that a wise steward will learn the practice of gratitude. In other words, what we are being habituated to do again and again is to view land and plants and animals as nothing more than commodity. A product to be taken and bought and sold in the market to enhance and increase the profit for shareholders. But these are not commodities. You're a Christian. I'm a Christian. These are creation of God. They're not brute facts. The the world we inhabit is not a brute fact. Creation is the loving gift of a creator who has decided to share out of his own infinite goodness and existence and love with us. He has called us into being as a sheer act of gift and grace. Nothing has to be. Your taste buds don't have to be. The eyes that behold the beauty of the sunset don't have to be. The nostril that intake ingests all of that beauty from the rose, it doesn't have to be. Every bit of goodness, every bit of, of, every, every, delicious taste and flavor, every gorgeous smell and sight, it is all gift and gift and gift. And listen, the only proper response of a human is gratitude. It is not entitlement. It is not complaints. It's gratitude. It is simply to say, thank you. So number one, practice gratitude. Number two, eat with awareness. Now, this is a lifelong journey, but you might take some time, as some of you already have, and watch some eye-opening documentary like food.inc and learn a little bit about the food system that sustains our life every day. And maybe some of you in this room might be called vocationally to go into the food system in some way, shape, or another as a scientist, or as a farmer, or um, in some industry, you know, owning or starting a market, or whatever it is, a restaurant. It's worthwhile asking, how does the food that ends up on our plate, what is the process that it goes through to get there? And does that process reflect something of the integrity of God and wise stewardship? Now I know that we can't change everything. And likely most of us are gonna go out from this place today like I myself, and, and I'll probably consume stuff. I'll probably ride in a car, I'll like I'll put on clothes. You know, I didn't know where they came from or what like, like I get all of that. That's reality. But listen, as human beings we have a responsibility in this world. And part of that responsibility involves awareness. And awareness always precedes change. And if there's gonna be a new imagination, if we are gonna imagine a different way of being in this world as it relates to plants and animals and all of the rest, you know, as Joel Salatin, I think, so beautifully embodies, then we need to raise some awareness and we need to eat with awareness. Thirdly, we need to live with simplicity. I put on my notes, insert, convicting Wendell Berry quote to make us all feel a little guilty. So here it goes. (laughs) By the way, I stand with you, like just letting this come down on me. And Wendell Berry is something of a prophetic voice on these issues And it comes out of, I think, his own experience as a farmer and the deep love and knowing he has of land. And he says this, we will discover that for all these reasons, and the reasons he's talking about is the reasons that God has created all things, that creation and land and plants and animals belong to God, that they are named good by God, that God delights in his world. We will discover that for all these reasons, our destruction of nature is not just bad stewardship or stupid economics or a betrayal of family responsibility. It is the most horrid blasphemy. It is flinging God's gifts into his face as if they were of no worth beyond that assigned to them by our destruction of them. He goes on. To Dante, despising nature and our goodness was violence against God. We have no entitlement from the Bible to exterminate or permanently destroy or hold in contempt anything on the earth or in the heavens above it or in the waters beneath it. We have the right to use the gifts of nature, but not to ruin or waste them. We have the right to use what we need, but no more, which is why the Bible forbids usury and the great accumulation of property. Now, these are strong words. And like you, I'm like, come on, like what, like what do you want me to do with that? Well, a few things we could do is recycle. We could, we could buy used stuff rather than put more new stuff into accumulation. You know, most of the clothing I wear comes from savers. This shirt from savers these pants from Savers, they either come from Savers or they're hand-me-downs by, from Pastor Bob Covolo, which is, <laughs> it is great to have such a dear friend who is a, who's a fashion theologian. So get a friend or shop used. Or just live with less. Buy less, use less water, use less energy, uh, use less resources, just use less and let's do the thing that Jesus taught us to do. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Like, contentment makes you happy. You know, Jesus, the wisest person to ever walk the face of the planet, had very little according to American standards. But was there, was, was there anyone in all of creation who knew such joy? Joy from the real goods of life the goodness of of God's good creation and a good meal with friends and and deep relationships and an abiding life with the Father. These are the great goods where we can find and know deep contentment. You know, I think if you scratch below the surface of so much of our unending need for accumulation and more and more stuff, and I'm right there with you all, I need it too, is probably if you scratch below the surface are all kinds of idols. An idol that... Maybe like God is not enough. I need to look right. I need to have the right experiences and the right stuff. Contentment in Christ. Fourthly and finally, don't give in to despair. You know, I thought about this last point. I thought, well, I could tell them, don't give in to guilt. You could walk out of this place and just beat yourself up as I felt like I needed to do after I read Wendell Berry. I read the whole chapter in that book, in that. I thought about saying, um, don't, if you're doing some stuff right, don't walk out of this place and congratulate yourself and then look down judgingly on other people who are not quite as righteous as you are as a environmentally conscious person. (laughs) Like that's more ugly than just about anything else, that kind of posture but I wanted to leave you with this, don't give in to despair. It is easy to think about the state of the world, the state of plants and animals and lands and how human beings who work in all of those industries are treated and it all just feels so overwhelming and so like, well, what can we do anyway? And of course, we are called to be actors in this drama. You have been invited to a role in the drama of God's redemption. You have a part to play. But the chief actor in this narrative is not you and it's not me, it is the risen Christ who is the true human. You know that passage we read at the beginning about all things being put under the human creature's feet? That text is incorporated into the New Testament to describe the role that Jesus plays in all creation. Jesus came announcing a kingdom, a new rule, a new stewardship that was breaking into God's world through his own love and power and grace. And he invites us to come and experience his healing, saving, love, and forgiveness, and to join this team and to be a part of this new kingdom project and to wait with longing and hope and expectation for that day when Christ will return and the true son of man, the true and better Adam, the one who has exercised true humanity in this world will take ownership of creation one day and all darkness will be driven out and all things will be made new. Creation is on tiptoes longing for that day. Are you and I? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in some sense feeling overwhelmed. Some of us can't even manage our own emotional lives, and we have a hard time with our personal relationships with people in our own household. And it feels overwhelming to think outside of those walls where we already feel crippled and, in some sense, like failures. And to think beyond that to uh, your creation. So we name that truth about ourselves. And we also name together the truth. That you, O oh God, are a God who is full of compassion and mercy, and you care for us as your dear children. And I just pray, O oh God, that a fresh sense of your own love and power would wash over us, and that we would be strengthened by your grace the grace that you show us for our brokenness, and the grace that you show us in giving us such beautiful meaning and vocation and purpose in this world. And God, would you inspire us afresh to the, all of the possibilities of what you could do with a community of people who live into this calling and vocation of being your image bearers. God, may that be so of us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.